This podcast is sponsored by FHE Health and their Shatterproof Program for First Responders. You're going to love my next guest. Gary Edgington stopped by the show. He's a former counterterrorism task force commander with over 30 years in law enforcement. Wow. I guess the question is, what hasn't he done? He's also the author of the best-selling book, Outside the Wire, a novel of murder, love, and war. You do not want to miss this show. Gary Edgington, next on the CJ Evolution Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Patrick here. Special thanks to you, the criminal justice professional, whatever you were doing, wherever you were at. Thank you for doing it. And remember this, amidst the chaos and all the BS that is going on out there, you were honored, cherished, and above all, you are loved. Keep up the great work. What makes Shatterproof a very unique program is it's one of the only programs in the country that first responders can go to that is 100% all first responders. Everybody's in pretty bad shape when they get here. And then 30 days later, when you can see the transformation and the difference in people when they've had 30 days uh, of counseling, working with therapists, working with a psychiatrist, getting the neuro treatment, doing the breath therapy that's done here. The transformation that happens with the clients is really humbling to be able to work around and see because people are getting better here. And it just shows that there's a need for the first responder community to deal with behavioral health issues and take them seriously and offer treatment to people that may need help out there. They should be afforded the ability to come get help when they need help. It has gotten better, but we still have a long way to go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am so excited to have this next guy on the show. He's a retired L.A. counterterrorism cop with over 30 years of experience in law enforcement. He is also the author of a great book, top book, Outside the Wire. Gary Edgington is on. Welcome, brother. Hey, man, I am so stoked to be here. I am really, really looking forward to this. You know, I was looking at, thank you, Gary. I appreciate it, brother. And thank you for your service. Many years thank of dedicated you. service. Not ju- We're going to get into it. Not just uh, uh-huh. you did some time in uniform, but you did a lot with the military, of course, counterterrorism work. Right. Um, thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you. for. Thank I you. was looking at your resume. I was like, Jesus Christ, man, what the hasn't this guy done? <laughs> jumping out of planes? Homie, don't jump out of planes. Sorry. Were you, were you on the Bin Laden raid? Because <laughs> no. I, mean, I think you could fit that in your resume, bud. <laughs> oh, man. I hate people that do that shit, man. That just pisses me off so much. God, I hate that. You know, well, I know what you, you know, those people that pad their resumes like, oh, that, yeah. God, it, but you know, it's, it's something to be proud of too. I mean, you've done a lot yeah. of stuff in your career. Yeah. It's admired and I admire that. I appreciate it's, that. It's, Thank you. So what was the, what was the catalyst brother? I always ask people who are in law enforcement or first responder field, you know, what was, what was the reason you, you decided to, you know, this is what I want to do. This is, I want to go serve. I want to be a cop. I want to, you know, serve the community. What was the catalyst behind that? That guy. The old man right yeah, there. The old man. Yeah. The old man. The chief. He was an E eight. Got out of the Coast Guard as an E eight. Went in forty two. Got out in sixty four. Went to work for the LA County Harbor Patrol. He was thirty four, thirty five years old. Went to the Sheriff's Academy, which is 
you know, it, it was a kick in the nuts for a young guy, yeah, let yeah. alone a 35 year old guy. Oh, in fact, yeah. I had, I have the, uh, the, the letter that the sheriff's department wrote to the, his agency saying, you know, he did such a great job for a man of his age. It was very impressive. <laughs> and I could only imagine because dad didn't PT. He didn't do any of that. Shit. Oh, yeah. Like I did before I went to the academy and I was out running and doing all kinds of shit. Oh. He didn't do that stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so, yeah. And um, that was that was really my dad's. Uh, my dad was my inspiration. Uh, yeah. I also was very interested in the military because having grown up with him around the Coast Guard yeah. and I love ships, I love the Navy and love uh, that kind of thing. And, you know, uh, but my dad sat me down one day and said, son, if you want to go in the military, finish your college and go in as yeah. an officer because the peacetime military oh, yeah. sucks when you're enlisted. And I'm like, I didn't believe him. Uh, and I didn't, but I, I saluted smartly and did exactly what he said Absolutely. and, um, and nixed the idea. But then when I was immersed with big army in Iraq, I realized the old man was fucking right. <laughs> <laughs> what it's, it's, it's so funny. You mentioned, you know, your dad going in, you know, when, you know, he started off his law enforcement career as, you know, as a, at a later period in life. And I remember I didn't join the army Gary until I was 21. And I even, I was called an old man. Yeah, you know, they were like, yeah. "Oh, here's the old guy." What are you talking about? I'm fucking 21. <laughs> you can buy the beers, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But you know, yeah. God bless your dad. We'll talk about him a, a little bit uh, sure. later. But God bless him, and and uh, you know, he he definitely served you know his country as well as the community. And sure did. But talk since you said uh, you know about the the army, you brought up the army. Mm -hmm. Can you can you? I mean, counterterrorism. You 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 mm -hmm. get some stuff overseas. Can can you talk about how you? you know you ended up where you did i mean because you only spent mm -hmm. what you spent just a handful of years on the street in uniform right how, how did you get into the counterterrorism thing well um from i was always i was interested my interest in terrorism began in the 80s yeah. um uh, i was a police officer beverly hills i was a detective actually and um the Olympics were coming to L.A., and I started studying terrorism, and that was the good old days of terrorism, Bader-Meinhof gang, Red, Brig yeah, yeah. Red Brigades, Red Army Faction, blah, 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 FARC, all those assholes, and they were all communists, and their methodologies were different, And but I but I started studying them and under, you know, because I, I found it fascinating, and so then – Fast forward, uh, I was working on the intelligence squad with the California Department of Justice as a special agent, and a slot opened up. And I had already been working a lot of cases with the FBI, so I already had my TS, and I'd been working public corruption cases yep. and white-collar fraud cases and things like that. Actually, it wasn't white-collar fraud. It was a it was a, a UC case. Yep. And, um, and so then I um, – then when the position came up at the Joint Terrorism Task Force, uh, I put in for it and got it, and I started at the Joint Terrorism Task Force in 1999 um, uh, on a domestic terrorism squad uh, and, uh, and then uh, stayed in that position. Uh, until I got promoted into internal affairs in 2001, I still maintained a semi liaison role. Yeah. And then when the balloon went up on 9-11, uh, the Department of Justice, uh, the Attorney General and the Department of Justice created uh, counterterrorism task forces throughout California that were staffed by special agents from the Department of Justice, uh, 
uh, our intelligence analysts and uh, members of local law enforcement and state law enforcement. And I commanded the task force that was stood up in Los Angeles. And I had everything from the San Diego, uh, Orange County, San Diego County border all the way up to Monterey, which was a huge area. Uh, But um, and then we had people inland and Riverside and other places anyway. So that's kind of how it started. And I worked in the Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, and until 2008 when I retired and I applied for this job uh, to be an embedded advisor uh, with the Army, either in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I was sent to Iraq as a uh, mid-level manager guy. And I worked um, – I guarded the flagpole, which I learned what that means, and it sucks, <laughs> at HHC, 10th Mountain Division. But I worked Whoa. IED defeat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Climb to glory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, – Anyway, so that's how it all happened, wow. and I was an embedded advisor, and I my mission was to give them the benefit of my knowledge and experience having worked complex investigations, yeah. uh, counterterrorism stuff, and also organized crime because, um, as you probably know, most of the bombers and all of those people, they're really kind of part of a, an organized crime network also, Absolutely. Yeah. and funding and all that stuff has a lot of the same – the same trademarks that is typical in organized crime here in the States or anywhere in the world, yeah. you know, money is the issue. And so yeah. that's what I did. And follow uh, the money, follow the yeah, money. Exactly. Exactly. I actually, yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, that was what wow. my mission was. And I, I stayed there. I was in, uh, in country there at camp victory, uh, for about five or six months. And, um, it was fascinating. It was yeah. interesting. It was bizarre, and which is in the book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. Was bizarre. It's this book is fictional, but it was inspired by my experiences in a, in Iraq. And uh, there are a lot of things in the book that actually did happen to me. Um, and I always tell people after they they buy the book, I say, okay, I want you to read the book and then come back to me and ask me which which of the things really did happen to me, and. Yeah. Uh, they usually don't get it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but there was some crazy shit. There was some crazy oh, I can't, shit that I, definitely I, I, happened. I, I can't sure. imagine, and you know, it, it always amazes me. I, I, I don't obviously have. I'm not an expert in terrorism like you are, but I, I do know that it would shock people. How? Correct me if I'm wrong, Gary. How many uh, threats are thwarted by people like you who are working in counterterrorism to this country every day? I don't think people realize the scope of it. Am I wrong? Oh, no, you're 100% correct. Um, and it actually and they should always, know about it. Yeah, well, right. they, I mean, they should. Well, they, they should. should. I guess they shouldn't. They shouldn't. Exactly, because <laughs> but, that's a problem. That is that is that's the 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 essential dilemma that is faced by intelligence services and counterterrorism and everybody else. Because if you disclose what you know, then um, it can be counterproductive because it might expose sources and methods. Yeah, exactly. Um, on the other hand, sometimes you let them know by saying we've gotten word about a terrorist attack, even though you don't know what's going to happen or you don't have a clue, just to scare the shit out of them. To but there's a reason think. behind releasing that information. It's methodical. Yes, there is. It, there's yes. a tactical reason oh, yes. to, to leave. And to, the, 
exactly. And and saying that is obviously fraught with all kinds of, of major issues. So yeah. it has to be done at the highest levels of government because, you know, there's economic, public safety, all kinds Absolutely. of concerns involved with that. But also terrorist attacks are thwarted by blue suits. Um, you know, coppers that just happen to stop the right well, car remember? or see a car that doesn't look right. And well, you remember you know, that that case a couple? What was it? It's got to be a handful of years ago in New York City in Times Square. Oh, that's where exactly the cop- what I'm thinking about. Yeah, there you go. Guy had a, what was a it? dud what, bomb. You, yeah, it was that's a bomb. Right. Exactly, and, and that a, would have killed. It was killed. a beat cop, wasn't it? it was a, it was a, yes, it was a I believe cop. it was. Yes, it was. It was a bomb that um, that failed to detonate, and I think that the uh, initiator. Uh, worked, but then it failed to detonate. Something happened. I think it was might have been homemade explosive. I don't remember exactly all the details. I know it had frag in there. Uh, and it was intended to be an anti-personnel uh, weapon to kill as many people as possible, which is the great difference between the the Butter Meinhof assholes of the '80s, the '70s and '80s, and our current foe, um, who. Uh, you know, their philosophy is is kill them all and let God yeah. sort them out. Believers and non-believers. Who if cares they're about good, the collateral, they'll collateral go to heaven. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if they're not good, then they're going to go to hell. So who gives a shit anyway? Um, and the, and the guys back in the eighties and seventies didn't want to kill a lot of civilians. They wanted to kill military cops, government people, and affect change that way. Nodes of government. They weren't targeting, you know, people generally speaking. You know, there are exceptions, now, but for the most part. You know, do you think, Gary, because I know, you know, I was on the local I was a local level cop, right. municipal cop. But, and I know that there was times where we'd be working, you know, with the IG or, you know, some mm-hmm. federal level agency. Mm-hmm. And there was a we got the it was almost like they were hesitant with with giving information. <laughs> and I know that was a factor in 9-11 where there wasn't enough mm-hmm. information sharing down to the local rival. Do you think post 9-11 that? We're playing better in the in the sandbox as far as filtering some information down or a lot of information down to the locals. Well, um, I know that prior to 9-11, it was dysfunctional. Yeah. Uh, And even even with local members of the task force uh, that uh, there was not a a free flow of information. It was not a collegiate environment. Because you don't want to give away all the information, obviously. I get that. Well, but also but but if you're on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, you have to have a top secret clearance. You've been vetted. Yeah. yeah. Okay. you have the secret handshake. And and in order to to pass inspection for the for to be allowed access to information you have to satisfy two you have to have a need to know and a right to know the right to know is the security clearance the need to know is a demonstrable need to know you know and um some things they couldn't share probably because of protecting sources and methods yeah the application maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe but that changed about 8 to nine months after 9-11 yeah. when um, the assistant director in charge in Los Angeles um, uh, basically shuffled um, uh, some uh, supervisory special agents around and brought in people who um, were all well-versed in um, task force um, supervision. And with local agencies, multi-agency task forces and things like that. And the the uh, environment changed overnight 
and it was a became a it went from a dysfunctional situation to a completely collaborative environment that was really a joy to work in and i cannot stress that enough yeah. sometimes people think i'm i'm you know i'm poking my finger at the fbi and that's really not the case i'm just telling what was really the situation and i think yeah. anybody who worked in that environment would say yes there was there were problems because you had something called the wall and the wall was that um it, it was an artificial wall that was created by a lawyer uh, in the Clinton administration named Jamie Gerlich, I believe, yeah. and uh, she said that agents working intelligence and agents working criminal cannot cross-pollinate. They cannot talk to each other. Now, anybody who has five minutes in police work and has spent any time in a detective bureau knows that the only way cases get solved is if people talk yeah. and they talk about their cases and they yeah. share the information. They go to – they do all of these things. To ensure that, you know, organically these cases get solved because somebody goes, Oh, yeah, I know who that guy is. Yeah, absolutely. I popped him three months ago. You exactly. know, I know exactly who you're talking about. You know, well, let's load up and go get his ass. Yeah. Okay. That was not the case. And then after that happened, Everything changed. Uh, you know, the the wall was, you know, with the Patriot Act or, you know, in the Bush administration, they got rid of that bullshit. And then everything started changing and it became a tremendously collaborative environment and yeah. uh, a great place to work. And the agents were fantastic. And the people I worked with, I worked with a lot of people from LAPD and the LA Sheriff's Department. They were fabulous. Um, my task force mission was to assemble target packages and hand them off to other agencies. We didn't put handcuffs on people. We were basically an intelligence yeah, collection the intel, yeah. and, and, and synthesis group, um, yeah. and we handed off target packages to LAPD and uh, – other agencies so they could go, you know, do surveillances, kick doors in, throw people in jail and, yeah. you know, see what happens from there. That's, that's, that's what, that's, that's awesome. That's awesome. And what, what it used to be, Gary, I mean, I, I'm, I'm 54. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. old, but I'm not that old, but it used to be, I wish I was 54, <laughs> but it used to be when I was younger, it's kind of like the United States agencies, three letter agencies knew who the threat was. Now it's like it could be anywhere from a radical group somewhere in the world to the 15-year-old kid that's hacking into a, a mainframe that belongs to the government, dumping stuff on the web, mm -hmm. uh, national secrets. What do you think some of the biggest threats out there are now? I mean, I, that's probably a broad question, but I mean, I, I mean, obviously we watch the news. Okay, this, this is a threat. But, but what do you – I mean, I guess there's just too many to name, right? Well, um. Uh, obviously, I'm not uh, I'm not playing that in that environment anymore. I, I'm yeah. basically getting my information from the same sources that everybody yeah, yeah, else yeah. does. I would say state sponsored actors. Yeah. Um, uh, covert operations, um, people uh, that are supported by uh, the government of Iran. Um, uh, yeah, IRGC. Kutz Force, et cetera, um, they represent a problem, um, and they're very, very dangerous. Um, and uh, Hezbollah, which is also a a, a, a pseudo uh, arm of, of the government of Iran, uh, continues to present a problem. And, of course, um, um, uh, ISIS or yeah. ISIL, whoever, whoever, you know, <laughs> basically, <laughs> you know, ISIS – <laughs> Those assholes that morphed out of something else that yeah. was, that that started in Iraq. Um, 
they are probably reconstituting the Taliban. Um, uh, you know, the problem is when we exited Afghanistan, not yes. only did we cede that territory back to the bad guys, a, a outlaw regime that tortures and murders their own people for for the most trivial things. We also we also emboldened the bad guys to to play again. And exactly. that's the thing that scares me. That's the thing that keeps me up at night because um, you know, as we gradually start to slide backwards, um, which we have been doing now for a while with um with you know our border security and uh you know the encouraging uh, in encouragement of aggressive law enforcement, which we both know is really a key element of public Absolutely. safety is aggressive yeah. lawfully aggressive proactive yeah exactly and when those elements are lacking it provides a, a a fertile ground for these guys to operate and um and and i don't think that um uh, i don't i can't see how we could not have problems in the united states if the balloon went up with iran uh over something let's you know say for instance you know cuz they've been playing games in the in the gulf seizing tankers and stuff like that and who you know if we don't do anything about it they always escalate it because they only respect yeah. Which the these strength will tell you this. They only respect strength, strength and resolve. Uh, absolutely. And, and and if you waffle, they will just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And so, um, well, you I know, think that's what we. I think that's the image we have now. And well, man, look, I'm, I'm not an expert right. like I'm not an expert like you, but well, you know. And you mentioned the the pull out of Afghanistan. Exactly right. Not to mention the billions of military hardware equipment that we left on the oh. ground. Who do you think is going to use that? I know you know. Well, well, I mean, it's it's uh, billions of dollars that was billions you know, and millions, millions of rounds of, of everything, oh, small gosh. arms, you Why know, medium. We just, we just armed them. Exactly. Exactly. And our and our people will be killed with ammunition that was made at the Lake City Arsenal in Missouri. Um, I mean, that is that is a fact that will happen one of these days. There will be soldiers, young soldiers that will be called into service somewhere over there because the balloon has gone up and they will be facing weapons that were surrendered. And let's face it. That's what happened. We surrendered that country to the Taliban. Uh, we all know that the Afghanis, just like the Iraqis, they're a mess. They're not. A, they're they don't have. A, a national identity to coalesce around. Uh, and so, you know, it's like herding cats, you know, you know, you, you just get what you can get. So we needed, even if we were, did a complete drawdown, we still needed to leave a presence at least Absolutely. at the airfield, uh, you know, and uh, in Kabul there and, uh, and maintain a presence there as opposed to just, you know, Getting the hell out of Dodge, throwing everything in the trunk of your car and going, you know, racing yeah. on down the road, which is and what I, we and, did. And I agree. We need, you know, we 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 should have had a presence there. I mean, the Soviets were there, you know, oh, and yeah. they couldn't take they were there for years and they couldn't. Yeah. Of course, they're not the U.S. military, but they, they they've been fighting for thousands yeah. of years over there. Yeah. And that's what they do. They like fighting. I think that's, you know, I mean, uh, I read somewhere that a man isn't a man over there unless he's carrying, a, you know, a weapon, which in AK, that case would be yeah. a Kalashnikov yeah. or, a, you know, one of those things. And so, yeah, um, I worry about that stuff a yeah. lot. Well, I think um, I, definitely I do, too. Do. You yeah. know, and 
it's just, you know, hopefully the pendulum will switch back around and we can start, you know, I mean, obviously there's politics involved, but I mean, we need to start projecting strength again, you know, where you, you, you carry a big stick, but you can negotiate, but the you're not, you're not afraid to use the stick if you have to. The thing that concerns me though, that it might require a, a, a a catastrophic event for people to wake up again about this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing that scares me. Uh, you know, their warning signs are starting to pop up again, you know, that attack in that schoolyard by that Syrian guy, yeah. um, you know, and uh, terrorist increase in terrorist activity in Israel uh, and, uh, and other things that are probably going on that, that, you know, uh, well, we're not aware of in China, and, China yeah. with Taiwan. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, then that that's the whole that the whole state actor thing is a whole yeah. other uh, level of concern, uh, you know, between, uh, you know, what Russia's main goal is not to take the Ukraine. It's to protect itself by by building a buffer, which is recreating the buffer zone that they yeah. had prior to the to the collapse, which includes Poland and Hungary and uh, Romania and the Baltic states and probably the Czech Republic too, because yeah. they're trying to protect themselves from traditional invasion routes uh, that have been used historically. And I mean, you know, think about that. Moving into Poland, Poland will give them a bloody nose. That's for sure. Poland yeah, yeah. is probably the best prepared military uh, in in um, in NATO besides yeah. maybe the French. Well, and you but mentioned Israel. Israel, you remember the Seven Day War. I mean, Israel yeah. will not hesitate. Yes, I, I, Israel will will nuke everybody. At least in my opinion, they'll be like, "All right, screw it." <laughs> you know, it might be overly simplistic, but I feel like the prime directive for Israel. Remember the old prime directive from from Star Trek. I think the prime directive, the 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 main force behind Israeli government and and policy is never again. Well, and you know, and it, it, and yeah. like you said, um, you know, uh, the prime minister during that war uh, called up uh, uh, Assad, I think, yeah. whoever was in charge in Damascus and said, we're going to turn your city into a giant salad bowl Absolutely. unless you pull your troops out. And he got religion and he did because he knew that the Israelis weren't playing. Well, yeah, and, I mean, they, they, they're surrounded by people that, that exactly want to kill them, kill them for thousands of years. Exactly. You know, and so. that makes you tough. Yeah. Let's let's pivot a little bit, brother. Let's talk sure. about the book Outside okay. the Wire. Outside the Wire. Looks like a good book. I read some of the reviews. I haven't read Thank it you. yet. Thank you. But what what was the catalyst behind that? Well, actually, you know, we were talking about mental health before we got on the Absolutely. air. Um the actual catalyst was uh a spat of soldier suicides on base at Victory, as well as an attempt homicide at a FOB uh, outside uh, in my area of control. That that and one of the one of my uh, one of the guys that was under my chain of command assisted in that investigation. Uh, assist the army in that investigation, and I. It was coming back from uh, the chow hall after uh, a sumptuous feast, <laughs> as you can only imagine. <laughs> and uh, and so the um, – uh, and, and I was thinking about what I'd heard about another suicide, yeah. and I thought – and I just started thinking, well, what if, what if a guy like me, 
a, an old, you know, flat foot uh, detective was asked to assist in a multi-victim homicide investigation on a base like Camp Victory and or got involved in it in some fashion. And so that's sort of the story, the genesis of the story. And the, the story does begin with the murder of two individuals on base. Um, and but it morphs into a story of international terrorism because yeah. that's what I really know. Uh, but I hasten to say I am not an expert. Anybody who tells you they're an expert in terrorism is because it's such a complex subject. Oh, yeah, it's such a complex imagine. subject. I can't. Yeah, imagine. I mean, it's just like you know, it's. Let's it's, say you have a ton of knowledge. I've, I've read way too much about it. <laughs> I way, way, way too much. And you're an expert, well, anyway. <laughs> okay. Well. I don't know about that, but whatever. Oh, whatever. <laughs> but you mentioned PTSD, Gary. Yeah. And, yeah. and what we didn't talk about yet, and I hope it's mm -hmm. okay if we talk about it, is you sure. mentioned your your God bless him, your dad, mm -hmm. who was your inspiration to to start serving. But you you what we can talk about, if you don't mind, is your sure. struggle with PTSD, and it and it kind of it happened in the academy. Can you talk about that? Your academy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was in the third week of the Sheriff's Academy uh, when my dad was killed, and um, I had had I I had worked the way the Sheriff's Academy worked was uh, I worked for Manhattan Beach Police Department. I was a, a you know police officer for them going through the academy, and they uh, the Sheriff's Department would have the cadets, um, the police cadets, uh, ride or work with their parent agency uh if they're if they're sheriff's deputies they either rode or they worked in the jail and if you're a police officer you know you ride in a black and white with an fto a field mm -hmm. training officer and so i had done that that night and as is typical in manhattan beach we dealt with several obnoxious drunks uh you know and you know gotten a little tiny bit of a, a kerfluffle with one of them and um and so my dad and I talked about that that morning and while well, he was having breakfast before he left for work. And uh, we were also we also talked about the Yule Love case, which was a police shooting in Los Angeles that was uh, extremely uh, contentious uh, because the LAPD officers were there investigating assault with a deadly weapon on a gas company employee who had turned off the gas at the location the the woman who was the resident there um confronted the police officers with a 12-inch butcher knife and threw it at them and they capped her and killed her mm -hmm. and so you know uh you had comments from members of the police commission like well they wear bulletproof vests why didn't they just let it fall off their their vests and really insane stupid shit like that yeah. that just infuriates the hell out of anybody who knows anything uh and um and of course the la times mischaracterized it as lapd was there collecting a gas bill which of course is complete horseshit absolutely it's completely wrong but of course you know that's the media for you and so my dad and i talked about that and so then fast forward three or four hours later, I'm, I go to sleep because I'd work morning watch and I get up, I'm standing in the kitchen, the phone rings and they say, hey, your dad's been hurt. Come to the hospital. Um, so I didn't know what to expect when I got there. I just knew he was badly injured and um, he rode a three wheel motorcycle. So I'm assuming he rolled it or got in an accident or something like that. So I get there and an LAPD beach patrol officer meets me at the, the, uh, the door of the uh, emergency room and says, uh, Gary, he says, uh, your dad's been killed. 
your dad's gone. Jesus. And he said, I don't know if it, if it helps you at all, but your dad got one shot into him and that was the shot that killed him. Now, God bless that officer, uh, you know, for saying that. Cause I know, you yeah. know, he knew, you know, and that I was, you know, a, a, a in the academy or whatever yeah. so i think he was trying to help me but that wasn't really the case my dad did wound the guy yeah the, he basically what happened was my dad it was a sunday morning in in uh in marina del rey my dad was riding about to had, was getting off of his motorcycle and was going to uh, um talk with a young woman who was running up to him who i've just spoken with recently and as he's getting off his motorcycle, this individual is approaching him armed with a, a, a buck knife, a folding hunter buck knife, which is that brass framed yeah. three inch bladed knife that people, you know, hunting people use all the time. And um, my dad um, gets off of as he's getting off of his motorcycle, you know, and it's a big wide ass thing. So you can't get off of it easily. You know, yeah. you have to kind of like struggle. It's almost like an ATV, you know, where you kind of have to throw your leg out wide. Yeah. So he's getting off of the thing and he's trying to pull his weapon out at the same time. He's right handed. He's getting off the bike on the right hand side. So you can just see this is awkward. And as he does it, um, the the witness that I just spoke with said that he had some he had some trouble because it was awkward he as yeah. he was trying to do this and she said she also felt like he was hesitating a little bit and my feeling is that he was hesitating because he's now confronted by an individual armed with a knife and we had just talked about that and it's been in the news everywhere so and I think yeah. in his mind he was thinking that so anyway he gets off the bike he starts backpedaling. The guy breaks into a stride, and he's literally now like – I mean when when he's on top of the guy he, or, or when the suspect is on him, he's like 15, 20 feet away, 15 feet away. So as he's getting off the bike, the guy's getting closer. Now at about six, six feet, seven feet, something like that, he gets his gun out, and the guy leaps on him. And he gets off one shot. Now he's carrying a Model 15 Smith & Wesson 38 Special. The round impacts the suspect in the left hip, breaks into two pieces. One piece um, embeds itself in his hip, and the other piece exits out the lower abdomen. And the guy um, uh, jumped on my dad. My dad was not wearing a vest. Jumped on my dad and uh, stabbed him in the, uh, the solar plexus. And then uh, as he's falling down and then cut his right carotid artery and um, he eviscerated him. Yeah. Huh. And then he took my dad's gun and he emptied the shells out of it. And he walked through this kitty beach area there with all these kids. And it's a Sunday afternoon. It's on September. So, you know, it's full of kids and mommies and all kinds of stuff. And he's covered in blood from my dad and from maybe from the wound too. And you know, he's ranting and raving, and he gets confronted by two L.A. County Sheriff's deputies who are, who were responding to an officer needs help, officer down call. And um, they um, – as they confronted him, he slashed at them, and they saw he had a cop's gun in his waistband. It had the black Packmire grips that everybody mm -hmm. had on their guns back then. And um, so they capped a round off at him and missed him. And then they went in foot pursuit of him, and one of the deputies dropped him and um, took a long, careful shot and dropped him. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, went wrong in that regard, you know, with my father's deal. Um, 
you know, back in those days, people didn't wear vests. Yeah. At least they didn't on that department. They didn't wear vests. Um, my dad, um, I bought him a Bianchi break front holster, which was very popular back then. In fact, I was issued one at Manhattan Beach. Mm-hmm. And um, to get that gun out, you got to mean it. You got to snap it out. You can't yeah. just do this. Otherwise, the springs will pinch the barrel. And um, and to be honest with you, his firearms training was not like what you and I would have gone through in our careers. They didn't shoot from the leather. They did point shooting at the range like you would do at a pistol range, yeah. you know, with your family. Uh, you know, here's your here's your 34 rounds, you know, and there are the targets, you know, they flip them around, boom, 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 close, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Which I had to do at the Sheriff's Academy too. Um, but we also got tactical training, and yeah. I, my, I'm pretty sure my father never got that tactical training. And I know damn good and well because I used to shoot with him. He always shot. He always shot single action. So I know damn good and well he cocked that hammer. Yeah. As yeah. he was retreating, and the round probably went off just a little bit before he intended to go off. Now, would it have made a difference? Probably not. At that distance, we both know you're gonna get cut. And you may die. There's no yeah. question about it. You know, unless you get, unless you put around right, you know, right between yeah. the horns, you get a yeah. little million dollar shot in there, you're going to get killed or cut to ribbons. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I mean, no, that's I'm just, I'm yeah. just so, so sorry, brother, that that happened. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you know, your thoughts and prayers, you know, and, and what's frustrating, it, you know, Gary is going back to what you, you were you were saying about, you know, the media talking, this is mm-hmm. the thing that pisses me off. Mm-hmm. If you've never been in a situation, if you don't have law enforcement experience, shut the hell up about, well, it's just a knife. Knives can do more damage than a oh. firearm, as you know, because you can oh. close the distance quick and you can get so many slashes off, you know? So it, 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 it's the friggin' media. It's these people that don't know what the hell they're talking about. We had cases like that when, when I was on the job. Well, why did the cop shoot him? He only had a knife. Well, shut the hell up. Do you realize what damage, you know, what, what damage a mm-hmm. knife can do? Your reaction mm-hmm. time. By the time a cop lifts his weapon up, bam, the guy's on you. Well, you know, you've probably had the same training I've had. Uh, I was on the range staff um, uh, for many, many years, the firearms and tactical training staff. And we did all kinds of classes for our agents and investigators and stuff like that. And one of them was you have a guy with a blue knife, um, you know, 21 feet away, 20 feet away from you. Exactly. And you, the officer has a blue gun in his hand and his job is to get off one shot before the guy's on them. They never can. They can never do it. Because of adrenaline, they're freaking out. It's pumping. You know, the best, the best shooters in the world, Gary, would be hard pressed to make that shot. Absolutely. Especially, you know, even with a gun in your hand uh, at 21 feet, you still can't do it. And, uh, and and for anybody to say that is just the height of ignorance, yeah, uh, almost criminal ignorance uh, in that regard, because it's just it's just dumb. It's just really yeah. dumb, you know. But yeah, just, anyway. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that happened, brother. Condolences. Well, um, thank you. you know, God bless your dad. But that it, led to. You know, PTSD for you that, that well, lasted your well, whole life. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what happened was I took a week off of the academy and um, 
I didn't really cry or mourn until about two or three days later when we're at the funeral home picking out the casket. I looked at the casket and I, well, I had this, I said, they're going to put my dad in a cat in a box. And I lost it there. And this yeah. sergeant from the sheriff's department from the health and welfare section of the sheriff's department put his arm on my shoulder. And he said, Gary, you got to hang, you got to, you know, buck up, buck up for your mom. Your mom's here. You got to buck yeah. up. Yeah. So I did. And I kept it bottled up inside of me. And, um, and then, um, I saw a movie called The Onion Field, and which I'm sure you may have seen yeah, too. Yeah. And that movie to this day just turns me into a mess. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, the pipes, all of it, just it just touches a chord in me that is just – but I'll tell you what happened was my first day back at, at the academy on a Monday, um, the uh, instructors stop everything in the middle of a lecture on the vehicle code, and they start a movie. And it's a dramatization of the CHP Newhall shooting where four CHP officers are gunned down by two assholes, okay? And it's very bloody, and there's chicken guts flying everywhere and squibs going off. And I mean it looks like – it make, it would it would gag Sam Peckinpah. It's that – it's really bad, right? Yeah. And they turn that on. They did that to see if I would lose my my shit and if I could hang because we'd seen that movie many times before already. Yeah. It's the movie they show you to scare the shit out of you on the first day to get you to you know pack up your shit and get out. Yeah. And here we are, the beginning of week four, you know, and they stop and they show that movie. And I know what I from I know exactly why yeah. that was. Yeah. And um nobody ever asked me if I needed any help, any counseling, if I needed to talk to anybody from the sheriff's department, from the academy, from my agency. I mean, it was just, you know, put on your Sam Brown, yeah. you know, and, you know, hitch up your pants and, and, you know, and so I graduated with my class and, uh, you know, and I was kind of, there were times when I was sort of hanging on by a thread. There were several times where I just, was the emotion was just right here and it bubbled out a couple of times you know at different points uh, in the academy private moments where i was just because some of these people had actually some of the di's actually had knew my father because they'd worked a sheriff yeah. station that that patrolled that area and so it was it was tough and i never and I, you know, I ha I dealt with several armed suspects, uh, fifty, what we called fifty-one fifties, you know, crazy guys yeah, armed yeah. with knives. While I was in field training, uh, you know, for three months we did uh, uh, field training with an FTO. I handled two crazos armed with knives, and on the second one, it was a damn close thing where I almost had to shoot this guy, and everybody was holding their breath. How is Gary going to handle this? How is Gary going to handle this? And it all worked out okay, but, you know, um, I never mental, really realized, yeah. yeah, and I never really re realized that I had this inside of me. I knew that when I talked about it, now, if, if, if this was a year ago, I would have been not, I mean, 
I still hurt when I talk about it, but I think it's a good thing to talk about. Absolutely. Because I think there are lessons to be learned from that. But also, I think that um, that uh, if I was talking about this a year ago, I'd be a little bit more emotional uh, because I did get help. Um, I did talk to yeah, uh, a, a psychiatrist, not a psychologist, and um, she gave me some tools to help me cope with it. And we did some exercises, and it really, really helped a lot. And but for years and years and years, I had this inside of me, and I'm I was defensive and ang you know angry and uh you know uh all kinds of things you know and i'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination nobody is now and you know we all have our shit from working in this business that will never go away no matter how much you do because you've seen too much but um but i'm in a much better place now than i was i'm much more self-aware of my behavior much better equipped to to discuss this and talk about it and deal with it. And, uh, and that's because I did get help. And, you know, I've listened to guys, you know, Delta force guys, you know, CAG operators and others talk about their struggles with mental health. And I'm telling you, that was like really an amazing thing to listen to this one guy, Pat McNamara, who I'm telling you what, that guy is scary, even if he doesn't have a weapon in his hand, because that guy's built like a brick shithouse, yeah. you know, and he was on uh, Team House and he was talking about his struggles. And I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, wow, yeah. this guy's talking about this and he's not the only one. Yeah. You know, I've listened to, to, you know, uh, you know, guys from uh, the SEAL teams and other places. Absolutely. And, you know, all, those of us who have, you know, put on a uniform or a badge, we've seen some things and dealt with some shit and we have to swallow that shit. Yeah. But it doesn't go away, you know. And it uh, usually manifests yeah. down the road with drinking or, you exactly. know, some sort of substance abuse. And that's uh, true. I know that was the case in, in me and. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so hard. I think we're getting better, Gary. I don't, I don't know if I think we're getting better in the first responder field with especially with the younger people coming forward, the younger generation coming and saying, you know, unlike you and I, who I'm assuming it was you, I mean, who who live to work, they, they're more interested in working to live. Yes. Nowadays, most of them, the ones I talk to, but they're more apt to come forward and say, I'm struggling, unlike you and I, who were told to suck it up. But I think we're I think it's just a culture thing. I think some agencies are better at it and some agencies suck at it. Well, yeah. I think I think you're at you hit the nail on the head as far as the cultural thing, the cultural aspect of it. You know, I grew up, you know, with uh, the stoic hero who, you know, doesn't do anything, yeah. doesn't, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, they're just they're just they just deal with it. You yeah. know, the guys from World War Two who brought who carried all this shit with him and never talked about it. My dad never talked about what he saw. And I know he yeah. he was in some bad places. So I know damn good and well he saw some yeah. crazy shit. But that's how he, he never was talked about it. That's how exactly. He was they never talked about it. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in law enforcement in an age where I'm working with a lot of Vietnam veterans and they didn't talk about their <laughs> yeah. shit. Tons of shit that they dealt with that they didn't talk about. And also, you know. 
and it was also the we still were dealing with the culture where it was still frowned upon. Now I agree with, and I also think I also think that the young people nowadays are much more comfortable with discussing mental health Absolutely. and and uh, mental health issues because so many of their their comrades are dealing with those things and struggling with those issues. So I think they're 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 good they're better at seeking that help and they're probably more self aware. Yeah. But yeah, I and I also think the agencies on the surface also are probably better. But the thing that concerns me is, as we talked about earlier, um, is that um, in order to step forward and raise your hand and say, I need help, you're it's an act of trust. You're stepping Absolutely. off. You're you are stepping off a ledge and you have to trust that there is going there actually is a bridge like that scene from the indiana jones movie where you step off the ledge and is there a bridge or not and i think on some agencies um there are there's a a, a dramatic loss in confidence and in faith in the command absolutely uh, they, and and i think that police officers have to feel like somebody has got their back and they know the politicians don't and in many sadly in many many cases they know the da's don't and if the and if the the command staff doesn't have their backs um then you know are they going to step forward and and ask for help and um and I hope they do because I know it's I know it helps from my own you know, helps. Yeah, personal absolutely. experience. We both know that. But the fact of the matter is, I I think there's probably a lot of guys that are afraid to do it because absolutely. they're afraid that that it will it will be a career ender for them. And, and, and you're absolutely right, brother. And I tell yeah. people I talk to a lot of people. You talk to a lot of people and. If you are for the listener out there, if you and I know it's easier said than done initially, but if you're in that environment where you're, if you want to reach out and ask for help, if people are giving you shit about that or trying to blackball you or you're not getting the support you need, mm -hmm. you don't need to be there. That's right. You and I know it's look, I know what people are thinking. I got bills and all this. Stuff. Okay, I, I get it. I understand that. But your health and welfare, your overall mental health, not just now, but down the road is more important. Absolutely. And so you absolutely. need to You're, reach out. Absolutely. And there is always another place that you can go to that absolutely. might be, you know, you know, uh, a, a, a friendlier environment. So you so you decompress and you go to a slower agency in a small town someplace and maybe you don't get paid as much, but your quality of life increases tenfold. Absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, there are always solutions if you look for them, um, and uh, and and that is something that I wish, you know, I wish that um, somebody would come forward and said, "Hey, Gary, you know, do you need anything? Do you need?" Of course, I probably would have said no, but if they were if they were really good at what they did, if they were a skillful practitioner, they, they would have got, they would know that I did. They would have gotten they, it out of you. Absolutely. They would have known yeah. exactly yeah. what to say to get it out of me. And uh and I would have gotten I would have gotten the help that I the, uh, that I needed to cope with this this uh this tragedy, you know. Yeah. And yeah. um Yeah, it takes a lot that, of courage. It's not you know this, Gary. I mean, it, it is it is a sign of strength to come forward and say, I need help. It's not mm -hmm. a sign of weakness. Anybody who tells you different, don't listen to them. 
Absolutely. Because that is so damn true. You know, Absolutely. as a first responder, we see shit on a daily basis that the majority of the public do never are never going to see in their lifetime. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they won't go through some horrible stuff. Cops deal with it every day, 24 mm-hmm. seven. Mm-hmm. And there's That's only true. so much you can fill in that cup before it starts overflowing and it starts manifesting in ways. Absolutely. You know, I don't I care mean, what you... I don't care what bigger uh, the biggest badass you think you are. And maybe you are. Or, or you're, you know, I was in Delta, or I was in CAG, or I was a, right. you know, a SEAL. Okay, this shit is going to affect you mm-hmm. at some point. And you mentioned team guys. I mean, I talked to a lot of them, and they say the same thing. Look, mm-hmm. you, you go in trying to save the or change the world, and guess what? The world changes you. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, it's not good. No, that is so true. And like you said, it takes a toll on families, on the health. It's the collateral Uh, damage, yeah. It's a huge amount of collateral damage. And, um, you know, it is – it's something that hopefully someday a lot of things have to change for the system to really improve, Um, you know, uh, you know. Law enforcement has made a lot of mistakes as a business, as as a, you know, as a group uh, over the years. But also, um, you know, there's a lack of understanding and a lack of 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 caring um, of, from the people who are shouting and 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 the thing that really is so stupid about this whole thing is, you know, I mean. They're going to be well and truly screwed without without the police oh, and without absolutely. hiring quality police officers, which is harder and harder to do nowadays. They're going to be well and truly screwed because they lack the ability to defend themselves, and uh, and they can't and they don't have a police officer there responding to their call for help, uh, or you know it's a slow roll because they don't want to get in trouble, or um, you know they see that car on the street that's that's casing the house out, and they don't want to they don't want to shake them they don't want to because then they're afraid they're going to get accused of of yeah. some kind of malfeasance yeah. Yeah, yeah. so they roll the other way then the crooks get out and go do their their you know uh robbery and uh you know leave death and destruction in their wake and that's what happens that's the yeah. reality yeah i mean you defunding know? i mean you saw it with these cities and the listeners probably have too. oh yeah what what is happening with these defund cities guess what they're having to hire cops again because they're realizing that oh it's not the utopia that we thought it was going to be without the cops and having counselors respond to, you know, domestic violence calls. It doesn't and, work like that. And who in their right mind would go back to work for an agency no, like that? Nobody would. And and the problem is you're going to have, a, you know, your command staff, you know, you've got this echelon of senior people who are your brain trust. These are the guys who train the youngsters, who solve the crimes in the detective bureau, who make the decisions in middle management, the lieutenants, the sergeants, who keep everything going. They're your non-coms. They're the core. They are are the thing that keeps the ship going straight. And when all those guys are gone and you're You're promoting two or three year – You're screwed. You're screwed. (laughs) If you're promoting two or three-year police officers into sergeant's positions, they don't even know what to do. You don't even know what you're – you don't know shit after two or three Uh, years on the job. Nope. And talk about liability and a lot of departments, they put themselves into that situation. Talk about the liability for the agency and the municipality. 
Yeah. Now, uh, that, and by the way, for the list, this is not a dig. If you're like a two or three year officers, I'm just saying, no, not at all. You know, to be put in a position of a supervisory role, you know, at, at with that experience level, you know, it's 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 not fair that the agency's doing that. But agencies have put themselves in that situation yes. because a lot of these middle management, like you said, the sergeants, the corporals, the lieutenants, the captains, they were saying, screw this shit. I'm done. Now what are they left with? You got a guy who has 25 years experience and the next guy below him has two years experience. Exactly. And that's and it's a brain drain. It's yeah, a brain exactly. drain. And uh, and it is lethal. And, yeah. um, you know, and there's 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 no amount of training uh, that will make up for uh, field Absolutely. experience. And, um, you know, it's. But I am, Gary, I am, brother, an optimist. I don't know. I, I usually, you have to be. You I have I, to be. I, 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 you know, I thought I was going to get more negative, you know, as the older I get. But I, I am optimistic that we <laughs> it will come back around. You know, I mean, law enforcement is, is a pendulum. You know, there's peaks and valleys. And I, I think we will come back around. It's not ever going to be perfect, but I think we will see, at least I hope and pray, a resurgence of strong leadership. And again, I'm not saying that there isn't any strong leadership in law enforcement and first responder fields. I'm just saying we need more of it. Right. So I hope and pray that it will change for the better in the future. And, you know, uh, I've been around a long time and I've seen a lot of cycles. I remember the the 60s and the 70s and the ambushes of police officers, Foster and Laurie in New York and a couple a couple other ones and bombings of police stations in California and other places. This is nothing new, yeah. uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it is. It, it's cyclical and uh, it is it's part of the human condition. Uh, humans seem to forget their history. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? And history they always seem, repeats itself. And history always seems to turn back around. And, uh, you know, as soon as you lower your guard, that's when somebody moves in and, and uh, you know, takes up the takes up the space. And yeah. uh, and that's just that's just the human condition. That's just the yeah. way it is. And, yeah. yep. you know, we we muddle on, you know, we muddle on Gary muddle on. Edgington. You are amazing, sir. I could talk to you Thank all day. You. Where can people Likewise. Find, where can people find your book, brother? You, you, you sure. got your own website. I know. Can you just yes. say it? And we'll put it in the show notes. Yes. I will I will read this off to you so I don't screw it up. Okay. <laughs> the website is https colon backslash backslash Gary Edgington author.com. And uh, my book, uh, Outside the Wire. A, 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 a novel of murder, love, and war, and it actually is. It has all three of those elements in it. Um, is available at uh, online uh, at Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble, and uh, I've got uh, you know Instagram, Twitter, and all that crazy shit too. Although I don't do Twitter because it's <laughs> you know it's just like so. You have these pencil necks on Twitter that just get so nasty and so violent, and you, you just gotta like, you just gotta ignore them, brother. Yeah, exactly. Don't it's engage. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, dude, you know, I know you're really brave because you're behind you're sitting at a, yeah, you know, a computer screen, you know, and it's yeah. like, God, get a life. But, <laughs> um, you know, Instagram is uh, at G Edgington books. Yeah. And uh, and I've got Facebook, Gary Edgington, all that stuff. So, Absolutely. yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's a struggle. <laughs> I don't mind telling you this. Uh, social media is 
just bit by like, bit, buddy. You just work uh, on it you, every day. You, 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 you do. You, you have to chip at it. You, you got to really chip do. at it. You do. You really do. Well, but, Gary, uh, it has hey, been a pleasure, brother. God bless likewise. you. Thank you for Thank your you service. Thank you so much. Same to you, uh, sir. I appreciate coming on. Everything will be linked up in the show notes. Gary, I'd love okay. to have you back on in the future, buddy. Maybe I would another, love it. I had a when you great have time. <laughs> well, I actually am working on another one because people kept saying it's a sequel. It's a sequel. It takes place three years after the first one. And as I tell people, everybody that survived the first book is back in the second book for the most oh, cool. part. There you go. And, for the yeah, another and one's coming. Another one is coming. I'm uh, well along on the first draft of the of the second book by popular acclaim. Awesome. So, so thank you very much. It's uh, been a real Jerry. pleasure. I thoroughly you, enjoyed it. You I take care, it, brother. You too. You too. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Criminal Justice Evolution podcast. Take care, everybody. Until next time.